1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Sports, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Paul Nepper, and today we'll be talking to Andrew Marinus to discuss his new book, Singled Out, The True Story of Glenn Burke. Uh, this is Andrew's third book. His, his two previous books are Games of Deception, The True Story of the First U.S. Olympic Basketball Team at the 1936 Olympics in Hitler's Germany, and Strong Inside, Perry Wallace and the Collision of Race and Sports in the South. So Andrew, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Paul. It's a pleasure to be with you. It's great to have you on. Um, I wonder if you could start off by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself.
0: Sure. Uh, so if you want to go way back, I was born in uh, Madison, Wisconsin, uh, and uh, remain a Brewers and Packers fan, even though I haven't lived there uh, for over 40 years. Uh, we moved to the East Coast, so I grew up mostly in, in Washington, D.C. Um, family moved to Austin, Texas, where you are uh, when I was in high school. And it was while I was a student at Austin high that I happened to see a a poster advertising, um, a full tuition sports writing scholarship to Vanderbilt university. And I was a baseball player and the sports editor of our high school paper. And so I applied for that scholarship and had never been to Nashville or really, really even heard of Vanderbilt before, but I was lucky and I won that scholarship. And so that's why I moved to Nashville, which is where I am today. And, um, It was as a student at Vanderbilt that I first learned the story of Perry Wallace, uh, who you mentioned as the subject of my first book. Um, He was the first black basketball player in the SEC. And uh, it took the school 20 years to invite him back to campus to honor him uh, for being the Jackie Robinson of the SEC. And it just happened to be when I was a student at Vanderbilt that that happened, that he came back. And so I learned about him reading about articles in the paper about this figure coming back to campus. And Wrote a paper about him for a black history course and enjoyed that, but didn't think about writing a book. You know, I um, graduated uh, in 92. I worked as the publicist for the Vanderbilt basketball team until 97. uh, Moved on to the Tampa Bay Rays when they came along in 98 as the media relations manager. And then moved back to Nashville and was with a PR firm here for almost 20 years. And it was during that period that i really sort of missed writing about sports what had been an interest of mine since i was 13 years old writing my own little sports magazine as a middle schooler Um, and so i came back to that story of perry wallace that i felt had been the most interesting thing that i did as a student in college Um, and it took me eight years to write that first book uh, but i loved it and um, it really sort of changed the course of my life from that point forward where I, i left the agency I've come back to Vanderbilt, uh, working in the athletic department here, being on a college campus is a supportive environment for continuing to write books. And so I've been able to carve out a way to, um, work on special projects here in the athletic department, which mostly involve research and writing and social justice projects here, which are all up my alley, you know, and then continue to, to write these books. Uh, I've got a uh, great wife, Allison. We have a fourth grader, uh, Eliza and a first grader, Charlie, um, and uh, brainwashing them to be fans of the Brewers and the, and the Packers, too. So everything's pretty good right now. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I know how that brainwashing goes. I have a five-year-old that I'm starting. I'm, he's he's uh, been watching a lot of Nick games with me. Okay. So it's, yeah, you got to start him young.
0: Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. My son woke up this morning. You know, the Brewers <laughs> are on the West Coast, and he didn't know the score of the Padres game last night. Yeah. I told him the Brewers won. He was it was as if they had won the World Series, like just so. <laughs> every game is life and death to this kid right now, which is fun to see. I know I was that way as a kid too.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, so as you document in the book of um, you know this was uh, uh, Glenn Burke was the first openly gay uh, baseball player, and and as as I as I mentioned to you you know before we came on air that um, I really like the way you use. Burke's life to as as a as a lens into greater social issues um you know homophobia and racism and hiv aids and the crack epidemic and on and on um i mean you really you really got into a lot of stuff in there and i know that's something that you've done in in all your books i wonder if you could talk a little bit about um your desire to kind of weld you know sports and social issues
0: yeah uh you know i'm At one level, I'm just a regular sports fan, like anybody that wins and losses matter and statistics and, you know, having favorite players and everything. But I think what makes sports interesting from an author standpoint is putting the stories of these athletes or teams uh, into the context of the world that they existed in, you know, and what are the bigger stories that sports can help illustrate? Um, One thing for me is I think sports are accessible you know, to a lot of people. Uh, it doesn't matter how old you are or what gender you are or what your income is, what political party even, like people pay attention to sports, right? Um, all sorts of people pay attention. And I don't think it's intimidating to pick up a book with a basketball player on the cover or a baseball player on the cover. And so that as an author, that's sort of getting past the first hurdle is that like this book can be for typically for anybody pretty much. Um especially for me, my books are considered uh, young adult books, you know, um, that teenagers are a big market for my books. And I I think that they are interested in even more so than adults, in some cases, um, the the social issues that are going around them today, you know, and and willing to explore those issues and eager to talk about them. And all of my books, I consider just as much for adults, too. But a lot of my speaking is in high schools and in colleges, for that matter, uh, talking about these issues. And with Glenn's story, the ability to write about baseball, my favorite sport, uh, during primarily the 1970s, which I was born in 1970. So that's sort of my first decade of consciousness as a sports fan. Um, and then to tell his story in a bigger context of a gay rights movement and the backlash to that movement, I thought would make a just a fascinating thing to research and an enjoyable thing to write about even though a lot of aspects of his life are not fun, but it, I mean, in terms of uh, having good material to use and important stories to tell, uh, it was all there. And then, like you said, towards the end of his life, uh, he's in San Francisco before the arrival of HIV AIDS and talks about, you know, sort of finally finding some comfort and happiness. And then how quickly that ends um, because of what is happening in his, not just in the world, but in his neighborhood, on his blocks, you know, people on his softball teams dying of this new disease. They don't know what's, what's causing it. And so uh, there's a whole generation of kids now that really don't even know much about that era. And I thought this would be an interesting way to uh, present that to them. So some people want to say sports and politics should be kept separate. You know, uh, I don't think they've ever been separate. I mean, go back to the 30s with my book, Games of Deception on that Olympic basketball team. Uh, Olympics period are an example of sports and politics mixing, but no greater example than, than the Nazis hosting the Olympics. So, you know, I try to point out certain hypocrisies, uh, in my books also. Um, and there were plenty of them <laughs> to point out in Glenn Burke's story too.
1: Sure. Yeah. I, n- I never bought into that nonsense that sports and politics don't mix. I mean the same, pre- the same people saying that are the same people who are furious that people don't stand for the national anthem sure. before baseball games, right? Exactly. Before football games. Um, you know, I you you're a little bit older than I am, Andrew, but we're the same generation, and and so a lot of this really brought me back to you know certainly, I mean, the HIV/AIDS. I, I don't think people can understand how enormous and terrifying that was for children our age. You know, when we were coming up, um, and and you know, as far as Glenn goes, um, his story is um, is tragic. I mean, it's a tragic story, um, and yet at the same time, I found myself uh, encouraged because you forget. I mean, I, I remember, but you know, you, you forget. Um, you know, I grew up uh, in a pretty liberal town, and there wasn't one openly gay person in my high school. I didn't know one openly gay person in my community. Um, and you know, this is the 1990s we're talking about. This is not that long ago. You know, there were there weren't any uh, there weren't any or, or very few gay. Role models, uh, gay characters on television. You know, I mean, Andrew, when you and I were kids, the idea that gay people would be allowed to get married was unthinkable. There was it. Was, there wasn't even a, a movement towards that at that time. It was. It was like just that. That would have sounded ludicrous to us. So I, I was, I was encouraged. As as tragic as the story was, I was encouraged. I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what life was like for gay people in the in the you know, in the, in the late 70s and and into the 80s for, for our younger listeners who weren't around then.
0: Yeah. And you've described it well. I mean, there's so many things that we see and in some cases take for granted now about how people are treated or um, opportunities that people have that did not exist then. At the same time, just quickly to talk about today before we go back to then, I mean, just like in so many other areas of life right now, there's incredible polarization on a lot of these issues. So even at the same time that there have been these uh cultural gains that we can be proud of um there's plenty of legislation I live in Tennessee you know where it's a really ugly example of it that's anti lgbtq anti transgender you know and so um it's not like we're completely out of the woods on these things yet but back then like you said there there weren't even gay characters on tv the idea of openly gay politicians um, was you know, it was very rare uh harvey milk in san francisco was uh, one of the first examples of that and that's at the same time that glenn is coming up and living in, in in san francisco um you had uh tremendous backlash to the what was a gay rights movement in the 70s too and, and glenn's story fits really neatly into that also when he's in spring training in florida uh in uh, vero beach where dodger town was anita bryant's down in miami leading a crusade against let uh an ordinance that protected gay workers, uh, in their jobs in Miami. When he's, uh, coming up with the Dodgers, there's proposed legislation in the state of California, the Briggs initiative, it was called that would have, um, allowed schools to fire gay teachers or any other employees of the schools that even supported those gay teachers, you know? And so that's the environment Glenn's living in the idea that there would be a gay professional athlete was also sort of just you know beyond uh, imagination to a lot of people um, the advocate uh, magazine gay magazine sent out a letter to major League baseball teams asking to discuss just the issue of of um, of gay men in, in major League baseball and the Minnesota twins PR director wrote back this scathing letter didn't even like this wasn't his private opinion but this public letter that he sent back to the magazine saying that You know, that it was uh, just almost obscene that they would even ask that question in this area, he said, of total manhood. You know, Um, meanwhile, there are gay players in the game, of course, and there always had been. Um, But Glenn was concerned and rightly so that if the word got out about his sexuality, that that could spell the end of his career. And, um, you know, he's a little bit um, inconsistent uh, or ambivalent in the way that he dealt with that. Um, on the one hand, he knew it could spell the end of his career. On the other hand, he was a proud person that wasn't going to completely hide it, who he was. And so um, he was going to, uh, you know, gay bars in the during the season while his teammates were going to straight bars. You know, in the off season, he was living in the Castro district of San Francisco, not hiding who he was. But he also had this really sort of, um, this. it's really sad to think about, you know, as he's coming up through the minor leagues, he's not sure what's the best approach going to be. Uh, on one hand, he says, maybe I need to, hit, you know, over 300 and steal a hundred bases, you know, and then if I'm really good, no one's going to be able to say anything to me, even if they figure it out. Then he has this feeling, well, maybe that's the wrong approach. Maybe I just need to be mediocre, you know? And if, if I'm not attracting a lot of attention, the spotlight will be off me. I can be a little bit more anonymous as a player. Maybe that's the best approach. And like what other, uh, you know, young players, rookie is thinking well maybe the best approach for me is to be mediocre you know and it really shows you the what homophobia does to people and not allowing them to be sort of become their their best selves and that we all lose from that when people um, even have this sort of self-limitation that they're, they're putting on themselves not to be their their full authentic
1: selves yeah that that's certainly uh, there are a number of tragic aspects to his story and that is certainly at the forefront you know that that uh i just you know reading it is it's heartbreaking that he didn't feel free to be himself and, and live the life that he wanted to live and love who he wanted to live love openly um it seemed particularly tragic it's uh, i mean that's always tragic it seemed particularly tragic with him because he was uh you know you really describe him as such an effervescent personality um you know the the people loved him all of, in, in the, in the, in the locker room and, you know, in the clubhouse and, and, and in, in the bars. And it seemed everyone who came in contact to, I mean, I was really struck that, um, a couple of the veterans on the Dodgers team were crying in the clubhouse after he was traded. And, you know, I, I, I it really jumped out a me I was like, wait a minute. He, he'd only been with the team for a year and a half. You know, this, this wasn't, uh, this wasn't like, uh, you know, uh, Don Drysdale was traded, Sandy Koufax cried, you know, where they had spent their whole careers together. This was uh, after a short time. So I I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, um, about Glenn's personality and, uh, how he affected people.
0: Yeah. That's a great point too. And yeah, he was, he was beloved. He was one of those people that was charismatic. He was funny. Um, he loved to imitate like Richard Pryor (laughs) back in those days. Um, Players all said he was the best dancer on the team. And this is during the disco era when they were going out to discos a lot. Um, Going back to high school, he was a popular kid. He was a great basketball player, great baseball player. He was sort of a protector that looked out for the kids that weren't as popular. You know, I think that says a lot about him too. Uh, On the playground, he would pick the kids that nobody else would pick uh, to be on his team and he'd still win, you know. So, uh, and then, like you said, that was probably one of the biggest surprises to me, pleasant surprise, it was reading about when Glenn was traded from the Dodgers and interviewing Dusty Baker and Davey Lopes and getting a sense of just how devastating that was. Like you said, he'd only been there a year and a half. He was a fourth outfielder on a veteran team with plenty of great players. Um, You think back to those Dodgers teams of the 70s, Glenn Burke's name typically is not one that comes first to mind, and yet he was the glue of that clubhouse. He was the one that kept things light, kept things loose, got along with all the players and, you know, baseball clubhouses are notorious for having clicks and, you know, the black players over here, the white players over here, the Latino players over here. But Glenn was somebody that they all loved from Steve Garvey and Don Sutton to Davey Lopes and and Dusty Baker. Um, And so when he was traded, uh, it was Garvey and Sutton that were sitting at their lockers crying and Dusty Baker and Davey Lopes who confronted, um, Al Campanis, the general manager, uh, talked to the team trainer, try to get them to admit that the reason Glenn was traded was because he was gay, you know, and they were really pissed off about this. And I just think that that's a great example of um, what a charismatic, popular person this must have been, that he's the one that they're crying about. And the amazing thing that, you know, he had that type of personality, even though he was constantly looking over his shoulder and kind of feeling a lack of, of support from people you know, explicitly feeling a lack of support from Campanus who had offered him uh, $75,000 in the previous offseason to get married, to cover up the fact that he was gay. And so here's someone that had a, plenty of reason to sort of retreat into themselves, you know, um, and yet he was so outgoing and that does make it extra tragic at the, towards the end of his life, when he has been someone that has given so much to other people that he ends up living homeless on the streets of San Francisco and has kind of abandoned, uh, by the world. Um, and it, it's particularly heartbreaking.
1: Um, so you mentioned Campanis, and, and, of course, uh, some of his teammates were, um, were there instances where he, where teammates were openly hostile towards him? either with the Dodgers or, or the A's because he um, was homosexual?
0: Yeah, I guess you could call it sort of an open secret. Like he had never publicly come out as gay as a player, he didn't have a press conference. Um, it wasn't until 1982 when he had been out of baseball for two years that Inside Sportsman ran a big article about him, and he went on the Today Show and really sort of came out to the world. But as he's working his way up through the minor leagues, um, players are starting to kind of figure it out. You know, they Glenn occasionally will in, introduce boyfriends of his to close friends on the team. Um, they notice that he's making excuses not to go out after games um, you know saying he had to call his mom or go shopping and it's eleven thirty at night you know and the guys are like this doesn't quite make sense um for the most part his teammates were incredibly um supportive or because glenn was so big and imposing physically that they weren't gonna make it an issue because they knew they would have gotten the crap beat out of them by glenn burke if they did um particularly with the dodgers he was supporting um he starts to see it a little bit more with the Oakland A's when he's traded there. These are players that hadn't come up through the minor leagues with him. They didn't really know Glenn as well. They had heard some whispers about him. And so I think the pockets of support were, were much smaller with the A's. Uh, it was more the um, manager, Billy Martin, that um, came out and said he wasn't going to let Glenn contaminate his team. He wasn't going to have, he introduces Glenn as a F word, you know, to his teammates Um when Glenn is sent down to AAA by Billy Martin in 1980, I talked to Shooty Babbitt, who was one of his teammates. And he said that there were, there was a lot of tension in the clubhouse with, with players not wanting to be near Glenn. Um, but they didn't really force the issue with him because Glenn had 17 inch biceps. He was the strongest guy on the team. Uh, Fred Clare, the um, later general manager of the or president of the Dodgers said, think of like Yaseel Puig. That's the kind of body uh, that Glenn had. So he was very physically uh, impressive and imposing. And, and Shooty Babbitt was really honest um, and a little vulnerable about the dynam- dynamic that that created. First of all, you weren't going to approach Glenn because you knew that he was stronger than you were, period. But he also admitted that it would be to, to, uh, to men of that era, to baseball players of that era, if you knew Glenn was gay and you got beat up by him, that that would be sort of the ultimate... Uh, blow to your own sense of masculinity, you know? And so, uh, shooty was willing to, to express that opinion. He also told a story about, um, at a game they were playing in Hawaii in AAA, where the catcher kept bouncing the ball down to second base. Shooty was playing uh, second and he was pissed off that the catcher couldn't get the ball to him on good throws on stolen bases or, you know, warming up between innings. And he confronts them about it in the dugout and they start fighting and Glenn's the one that breaks up the fight and says, you know, we're we're teammates, we're all black men on this team, we're not going to be fighting each other. And Shooty Babbitt admitted to me that that moment he had a, he wasn't quite sure, like, should I go ahead and get beat up by the catcher? So I don't owe Glenn something sexually for protecting me, you know, and later he said, how ridiculous that was. But at the time, that was his thought. And I think that really gives you an insight into the way that people were treating or uh, maybe not even you know what they were saying to glenn but the way they were acting around him and the, the sense of uh, the lack of support the lack of camaraderie that was uh, surrounding him right
1: yeah and i love i uh, you point out at some point in, in the book kind of the irony that of you know here are the, these these homophobic guys who are all showering together and walking around the locker room naked together <laughs> and not i don't it's just you know i <laughs> Some of the, you know, the 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 ideas and the stereotypes were just so outrageous. Um,
0: yeah, and the, and the other one I I thought was outrageous is people typically even today they'll say like a player who speaks up on social issues or a gay player would be a, a quote unquote distraction to a team. You know, and Glenn wasn't a distraction; he was the most loved player on right? the team. And Tommy Lasorda was inviting Don Rickles and Frank Sinatra into the clubhouse before games. I mean, he was inviting distractions. Charlie Finley. Was wacko, you know, right. owning the Oakland A's. There were plenty of distractions around the A's. Glenn wasn't the distraction. He he was a consummate, you know, team player on these teams. Right.
1: Um, I, you know, I mean, you mentioned he could have he could have beaten up just about anybody in the in the on the field, and um, he had a bit of a temper. It sounds like, um, you know, there was there was an edge to him. Do you think that was all? the frustration of being gay and having to kind of hide his lifestyle and, and, and the backlash he received about that, or was there more to that? Was there, you know, some other demons in him? I mean, even just, you know, I don't know, I don't know how related this is, but after baseball, you know, he had a very difficult time kind of finding his way in society and figuring out a, you know, a career path and just uh, how to, how, how to, how to move forward uh, in a healthy, functional way in society. How much of that was, you know, the, the, the rejection for being gay and, and or were there other things at play?
0: Yeah, uh, it's a really interesting question. Um, I can't answer it with 100% certainty. I think that, yes, I think that um, he did have a temper. There was always sort of an edge to Glenn. Um, some of his minor league teammates said they never knew which Glenn was going to show up. You know, on one hand, he was the most popular player on the team. his funniest player on the team. But On the other hand, he could snap pretty quickly, um, uh, fight with his own teammates on the bus. Sometimes, you know, there's a case where someone took one of his beers and he was, he was upset about that. Um, he wasn't the type that was going to just lay down to authority either. You know, he would talk back to his managers. Um, right. And I think that, as an armchair psychiatrist, like you could probably say that, well, he had these underlying tensions, you know, in his life. And that that maybe was a sometimes spilled over, you know, uh, especially on the field or in that environment of baseball. Um, I think that there was some history in his family also of, um, alcohol abuse, um, of, uh, domestic violence. And so to what degree that, uh, shaped Glenn, uh, I don't know, but it's possible uh, he was growing up in the Bay Area where there were um, at the time the Black Panthers were forming and there was uh, incredible racism in that community and police violence. Uh, and that surrounded him uh, when he's in high school at Cal Berkeley. You know, there are protests against the Vietnam War and against the free speech reco- uh, restrictions on campus. And his high school is a couple blocks from that. And he's seen the protests that are taking place out on the street in front of his high school. And so the idea of, um, you know, speaking his mind and being a, a, a proud African-American person, uh, um, proud uh, of himself and not backing down from, from who he was, I think that was all a part of who Glenn was. And sometimes he had uh, different ways of expressing that. Not putting up with any BS was a big part of, of who Glenn was, I think, regardless of whether he had the underlying um, uh, sexuality uh, tensions that were present in his life as well.
1: Right. And, you know, I mean, as we touched on, it was, it was, it was so difficult in many ways to be a gay person at that time period. Um, that's probably multiplied by a thousand in, in the arena of professional sports. Um, was it, was it significantly different or more challenging to be a a gay African American at that time?
0: Yeah, I would, I would say so because in every aspect of life, um, It was more difficult to be African American, you know, in this country, um, always is. And, um, one thing that was interesting about Glenn's experience was at that time in major league baseball, there were probably more black players in MLB then, than there are now, certainly percentage wise, um, fewer teams, but you know, on his team, he had Dusty Baker, he had Reggie Smith. Um, he had, uh, Davey Lopes. There were, um. Lee Lacey, friends of his, even across teams, Dusty Baker talked about how the black guys on different teams would get together for lunch before games, you know, especially coming up through the minor leagues, they would tell each other, look in this town, these are the safe bars to go to if they're playing in the South or the Midwest where there could be a lot of hostilities. And so there was a pretty good network amongst all the gay players. I'm sorry, black players in major league baseball at that time. And, That could have been a source of support for Glenn, but he even wasn't really even fully able to take advantage of that either. Because if guys are getting together and talking about what's on their mind and what are the issues they're facing, Glenn wasn't comfortable, you know, sharing everything about himself. And uh, if they wanted to go out to a, a club on an off day or after a game or something, he didn't want to go to the same bars that they were going to. So even that support network that could have been there as a black player in the game at the time, he wasn't able to take advantage of. And so that makes it even, um, you know, another level of difficulty that Glenn had to overcome.
1: How, how great, I guess it's a two part question. How great of an athlete was Glenn and how good of a, a, a baseball player in particular was Glenn? I mean, there's, there's a quote in in the book from, uh, I forget his name, but one of the Dodger coaches who, who said this guy could be the next Willie Mays basically. Uh, yeah. I mean, was he, how, how, I mean, how, how good of a player was he?
0: Right. Well, he was, first of all, he was a fantastic athlete. He was a great basketball player until his dying day. He actually felt like he was a better basketball player than, than baseball player. Uh, as a senior, he led his team to undefeated um, high school uh, championship in Northern California. Um, he played college basketball as he was working his way up through the minor leagues. He was one of the first athletes when the NCAA changed its rules to allow pro-athletes in one sport to play collegiately in another, Uh, he's in the Dodger minor league system and he, he enrolls at Nevada Reno and scores over 30 points in his first game, you know, and he hasn't, uh, he's just come off the baseball field. Um, He was only around six feet tall, but he could touch the top of the backboard. Um, As I mentioned, he was always the strongest player on teams that he played on. And so, uh, and even his identity, first and foremost, he just considered himself an athlete uh, more than anything. Rupert Jones, uh, the former major leaguer who also had gone to Berkeley High School, told me that Glenn was the best athlete he's ever seen. Um, Junior Gilliam's the coach you're talking about with the Dodgers, who had played you know, with Jackie Robinson and been part of the Dodgers forever. And uh, he said that Glenn had the potential to be the next Willie Mays. Uh, as he's coming up through the minor leagues, he hit over 300 five times. Um, he set stolen base records in two different leagues. Uh, in the minor leagues. And so he was a prospect that the Dodgers really um, thought had all the potential in the world. And we have seen players not live up to that potential that's been put on them. Like sometimes that's the worst tag is to get told that you have a lot of potential. Um, And so you don't know why Glenn didn't, you know, make, become a major league all-star. What you do know is that when the Dodgers found out that he was gay, even though he had started game one of the 77 World Series and started two games in the 77 NLCS against the Phillies, they didn't want him on the team anymore. And you do know that when he gets the Oakland A's, Billy Martin doesn't want him on the team. And so, you know, he didn't really have a chance to become the major league player that he could have been. Um, it's, the, the evidence is there that, that he wasn't supported.
1: Yeah. Who would have imagined that Billy Martin was an asshole?
0: I I just think when I think of Billy Martin I think of it on the field arguing you know or getting fired by a George Steinbrenner and I asked Mike Norris you know the A's pitcher Mike Norris uh, that Glenn was teammates with if he felt there was any and you you asked about this in a previous question about just racism in the game and I said is was Billy Martin racist and he said no Um, you know the black players liked Billy Martin they liked playing for him he was supportive there were a lot of black players on the A's at that time and so he didn't think that, that race um, had any specific uh, things to do with with Billy's, um, you know, uh, hatred towards Glenn, which is not really a, a feather in his cap. I mean, it, so that says it was 100 percent homophobia.
1: Yeah. Well, Billy had uh, I I grew up a Yankee fan, so I was very familiar with Billy and Billy had uh, real, a real, real inferiority complex and uh, was always trying to prove his manhood. Yeah. And so it's it's not surprising that, you know, given the perceptions at the time that he would be extremely homophobic.
0: <laughs> yeah. Right. You um, know, he had gone to the same high school as Glenn. They were both from Berkeley High. Glenn, oh, in really? some ways, was always trying to prove his manhood also. You know, and, and when right. Billy became uh, manager of the A's, Glenn initially thought it was going to be a good thing. that They were both kind of hometown guys from Berkeley. They were both sort of scrappy uh, fighter types. Um, but of course, it, it didn't work out the way Glenn had hoped.
1: Yeah. Um, so of, Glenn, of course, Glenn is kind of, as you describe in the book, you know, he uh, basically run out of the game. Um, and, uh, I, I think you said it was 1982, a few years after he left the game, um, he decided to come out publicly, uh, when on television, there was a big, uh, news article on it, all that. And to Glenn's surprise and to my surprise as a reader, um, the story kind of fell flat it wasn't nearly as big a news as you would think it would be back given the stereotypes of the, of the day and the belief that there were no gay professional athletes. Um, So I I guess my question is, why do you think it wasn't a bigger story? Is it just that he wasn't a a big name that he was no longer active? You know, I, I mean, I obviously if it was, if Hank Aaron or Willie Mays came out as, as gay, I'm sure it would be a much bigger story, but Is it that simple or was there more to it?
0: Yeah, it was really surprising to me too. And I I mean, I guess in some way, like none of us should be surprised because who's ever heard of Glenn Burke? Most people have not heard of him. So if it had been a bigger story at the time, I think we all as baseball fans, especially would have, would know the story or feel like we knew the story more. Um, But yeah, he comes out in 82 with Bryant Gumbel on the today show. It wasn't a particularly hyped interview. you know, it just took place in the middle uh, of the show. Can you imagine now if a, uh, Major League Baseball player, two years removed from the game, from the Dodgers. You know, a big market was going to come out on the Today Show. Like, we'd be seeing ads about that for weeks before it happened, right? It'd be all over social media. Um, It's uh, it's not a cover story, but it's a, a headline on the cover of Inside Sports Magazine that same month about the gay Dodger. It's a big article. Glenn is actually hopeful that this media coverage will give him another chance in the major leagues. Which doesn't uh, maybe not the most intuitive thing you would think, like that that's his expectation, but his hope is that when people see that he was run out of the game due to homophobia, not that he wasn't good enough to last, that um, a major league team uh, will take a chance on him again. You know, and that doesn't happen. He's hopeful even to make some money, um, as you mentioned earlier. He didn't really have a plan post baseball, uh, and his baseball career was abruptly ended. And so he's sort of a little floundering uh, in the, as he's uh, living a, a regular life again, you know, and needs the money from this article. His, his, uh, his partner at that time, Michael Smith, on again, off again, partner was the one who wrote it. And so Glenn thought he was going to share the money um, from inside sports with him. And he never saw any of that money. Um, so all of his expectations for this uh, coming out didn't pan out the way he had hoped. And I think that, um, few of the factors like you mentioned, he he wasn't a household name. So that I think that went into it. Um he wasn't an active player anymore. So I think that was a part of it. Um I also think that in the sports media there weren't a whole lot of journalists that were that interested in writing about gay athletes in in sports. You know, if, if that's sort of like who would be propping up this story is the American sports media. It wasn't an issue that they really touched back then uh, the two organizations that he had come through the Dodgers and the A's, you didn't have sort of their platforms pushing the story either. And then I think the big factor was that, um, if the American media was covering a story related to, uh, to gay men at that time, this is right when AIDS, HIV AIDS is coming along. And so his story was, was buried, um, by all of the attention that was, was given to that. And so, um, it really, uh, is the beginning of a, a tragic cycle in Glenn's life. You know, uh, he's not sure what he's going to do after baseball. He's hopeful that this media coverage might give him a second chance. That doesn't come. Uh, he has this brief window in the Castro before HIV where, uh, he's living the life, at least, uh, in some ways that he imagined or had hoped for. Uh, he's playing softball. He's a star on the gay softball circuit in San Francisco. Um, but then he's hit by a car and his legs are broken. And so his identity as an athlete is over, essentially, at that point. Uh, he'd been introduced to cocaine as a Major League Baseball player coming along right at the time that it's, you know, coming along at Major League Clubhouses. And because of the pain of his injury, I think because of the mental anguish he's going through of being denied his career, uh, he turns to drugs as a coping mechanism. And that as you might imagine, um, leads to other problems. And, um, really you don't see many happy moments in Glenn's life after that.
1: Yeah, And of course that kind of coincided with the explosion of, of, of crack, you know, the crack epidemic. And, um, yeah, you know, reading it, it, it's like, it's like there were several deaths in his life, you know, the death Mm -hmm. of his baseball career, then the death of his even, you know, his effervescence. Athletic, yeah, yeah. You know, his effervescence, yeah, his effervescence, his athletic career, and then of yeah. course his his ultimate, you know, death. Um, you know, you touched on AIDS, HIV, AIDS, a little bit, and 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 you know, we we're talking about before just some of the things that uh people younger generations just I, I think can't relate to, have no idea what it was like back then, and, and that was HIV/AIDS. And uh, again, going back to my childhood, I know um it was something that we were was drilled into our heads. You know, I remember in middle school and high school, there were constantly assemblies and people mm-hmm. talking to us about being protected and HIV AIDS and it'll kill you. And um, it was terrifying. Um, and I, I mean, I wasn't even sexually active or a drug user and I was terrified. Right, right. yeah, <laughs> you know? I
0: agree, same, same with me.
1: Yeah, um, so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, you know, the the, the kind of um, the onset of the HIV AIDS epidemic and, and what that was like. <laughs>
0: Yeah, well, Glenn sees that um, in San Francisco as he's living there in the uh, in the offseason. Uh, well, I shouldn't say the offseason. This is after he's out of, of baseball, but playing softball and uh, his softball teammates start to become sick. Uh, there's posters on the wall of the pharmacy about these purple lesions on um, people's feet. And this they called it a gay cancer at first. People weren't sure what it was. Uh, there's misinformation in the um media in the Castro about how, how it spread, how to protect yourself. And so it's really scary uh, to imagine um, your friends dying, but then also just the regular people you see in the neighborhood, the, the bus driver, you know, is not there anymore. The person that used to work at the grocery store, not there anymore. Um, I talked to a person who uh, owned a bed and breakfast, essentially, that was, you know, very close with Glenn and said that uh, people were coming out and sort of having their final vacations, you know, uh, knowing that they were about to, um, to die, uh, travel agents scheduling trips for people for like their last hurrah. And this real, this, uh, this neighborhood of the Castro that had been so full of life, all of a sudden, uh, you know, is this hellscape of, of death. Uh, and that's the environment that, that Glenn, he's, you know, he's gone from starting in center field at Yankee stadium in the world series now to living uh, in the Castro homeless and dying of AIDS Um, and the inhumanity of people, like you said, like uh, people who had no reason necessarily to fear AIDS, treating anyone who happened to be gay as an an outcast. You know, um, there are examples of gay men wanting to go home and visit their family for Thanksgiving or Christmas and, you know, the parents not letting them in the house, fumigating the house after they left. Uh, a gay man flying home to Phoenix, um, to die at his parents' house and the, the pilot trying to kick him off the plane. Um, no one's serving him on the plane. You know, when he dies, the funeral home won't even touch his body. They uh, bury it in plastic and, 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 set it on fire, you know, just incredible acts of, of, of fear and inhumanity and, and outcasting. And you, you also saw, um, a presidential administration, not wanting to deal with it or, um, Refusing to deal with it because of who was affected, you know, and you can make some parallels uh, to the way COVID was treated when um, Trump administration realized it was a lot of Black and Brown people that were dying of COVID, and sort of a lack of action on it. Well, that was happening with the Reagan administration when um, when it was uh, gay men that were dying of of AIDS, uh, and you didn't see anything happening, and you saw a political commentators saying, you know, that they deserved it, uh, to die. Uh, and so that was the environment that, that Glenn was living and dying in.
1: Yeah. I, I, I was thinking of COVID a little bit as you were talking, you know, in terms of, uh, I mean, some of it obviously was was just pure hatred and, and, and inhumane and all that. And some of it was, I don't know if you'd say legitimate fear, but you know, if yeah. you think back to the early stages of COVID when, when we didn't understand it, and we just knew people were getting sick and dying. Um, you were scared yes. and, and rightfully so. And you, and, Early on, when there was as much information, and early in the AIDS, you know, crisis, we didn't have a great deal of information about how it was spread and, and so forth, and so there was a somewhat legitimate fear. Now, people t- went way too far with that, of course, um, right? But it, it was there, there was a, really a, an aura of fear. Yes. And one thing I want to touch on, I really appreciate in the book that you, uh, because it was considered a, a gay disease, and for many of us, the the, the the, the thing that woke us up was, was Madge Johnson, of course. Right. Um, but, uh, for, for many, you know, for a long time it was very much considered a gay disease. And I appreciated that in the book, you talked a little bit about why it spread so rampantly in the, in the, in the gay community and why gay people seem to be more inclined to get it. And I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit, cause I think it's important.
0: Yeah. Well, I thought it was, uh, important to say that there's nothing inherent about being gay that like <laughs> gives you AIDS or something like that, you know, which I think a lot It'll of people be at punished that time, by
1: God. Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah. 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 And, and there was some uh,
0: sentiment or uh, propaganda around that back then. It just so happened that certain um, sex, safe sex practices that maybe weren't being uh, followed or like, who were the first people to get AIDS? It's going to spread in that community. Um, and so uh, I thought it was important to point that out, especially for younger readers reading the book. Um, the last thing I wanted to do was to stereotype a group of people in this book. And yeah, you know, this is, this was, these were the people that were being affected by the disease at first. And so to, to, to show almost a definition of what HIV was and how it is spread, I thought was an important thing to put in the book, especially knowing that um, younger readers are, are picking up this book.
1: Right. And I, you know, I even learned a lot. I I didn't know it spread more easily um, through anal sex, you know, and and I didn't necessarily think, Mm -hmm. well, right. Gay people didn't need to wear condoms because they didn't have to worry about getting pregnant Pregnant, and and that, you know, just, I mean, simple, you would argue common sense things that it just never really gave much thought to. That's right. uh, um, What do you think Glenn would think about your book?
0: (laughs) Great question. I hope he would like it. Um, You know, I, he did want his story told uh, as he was dying. He sat down with Eric Sherman, a New York sports writer, and they collaborated on an autobiography that came out self-published book in 95 when, when Glenn was dying. Um, and so I know that he wanted his story out there. That was important to him, even as he's in incredible pain to give these interviews to Eric. Um, I think that he hoped that his experience would make it easier for gay players in the future. Um, which you could say there's a pretty mixed uh, record on that. I mean, the doors that he opened, there haven't been a whole lot of people uh, walking through them, not through any fault of their own. But I think just because of the lingering homophobia, especially in um, men's professional sports, uh, even collegiate sports in in this country. But you know, I've heard from some gay baseball players who have called me or emailed me since this book came out, and you know, people I didn't know before and they're encouraged by the story, just the fact that it's out there and, you know, and people are talking about it again. And
1: they also are these, I'm sorry to interrupt, are these current yeah. players,
0: current players, not in the major leagues, uh, okay. minor league players. Um, and who know of major league players and umpires that they're hopeful will, will come out. Um, and so I think Glenn would be um, happy that the conversation is happening again. One th- I don't know that he would have this attitude, but the subject of one of my other books had this attitude, uh, Perry Wallace, who was the basketball pioneer. And when he was pioneering, he was hated by a lot of people and misunderstood by a lot of people, intentionally misunderstood by a lot of people uh, who didn't want to hear what he had to say about the racism that he was experiencing. Later in his life, those same communities were embracing him, you know, and welcoming him back to Nashville or to Vanderbilt and listening to what he had to say. And You know, in some ways, that's great. In other ways, you wonder, is it really authentic here? Where were these people when you needed them? And but what he said was uh, reconciliation without the truth is just acting. And a lot of times organizations, teams, universities want to have these moments of reconciliation, you know, uh, at least the photo op to have this person back and everyone's smiling. And he said, if they haven't really dealt with the truth of what the situation was in the first place, then it's just for show. You know, it's 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 false. It's just acting. If the truth is present, then those can be really powerful moments. And so he felt like the truth was present when he was invited back, you know, later in his life. I'm hoping that Glenn would feel like, you know, his name is out there now. There's been, um, there was a middle grade fiction book called a high five for Glenn Burke that came out a couple of years ago. There's my book, um, MLB through Billy Bean. And some of the work they're doing is, you know, getting Glenn's name back out there, celebrating pride month, that sort of thing. And um, so if Glenn's name is going to kind of come back, if people are going to talk about the history that he made as the first openly gay player and the inventor of the high five, then I think it's important that it's not just treated as those two lines of trivia, you know, but let's really learn what his experience was like so that um, we can make it easier for those gay ball players that are coming up uh, through the minor leagues or are already in the major leagues now and not repeat the same mistakes. You know um and so i think that i i think he would have that same sort of attitude because glenn was always real you know he didn't shy away from from things and so i I think in that respect he would be happy there's a book that tells his his real
1: story um all right i I have one last question for you Andrew. i'll get you out get you out here with taking off your time but uh let me just say again the name of andrew's book is singled out the true story of glenn burke and yeah we didn't even get into the whole high five thing i mean i was so cool. And so kind of, um, you know, uh, emblematic of his effervescence. I, I yes. keep using that word, but I think it really applies. Um, just the enthusiasm that he brought to the game is such a cool, uh, lasting legacy. Uh, the high five, I think, um, I think ESPN did a 30 for 30 they short. On sure. it. Yes, they did. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I, I, I love this book. I told you before, Andrew, it's, Glenn's story is fascinating and it, but it's so much more than a sports book. It's, you know, it it just touches on so many issues, you know, so many social issues. Um, And so if you're interested in homosexuality or the disco era, you know, I mean, that was all that, that was fun to kind of go through um, just the whole disco lifestyle and, you know, racism and HIV AIDS and drug use and the, the, the lifestyle and the Castro in in the late 70s is fascinating all that stuff so I definitely recommend Andrew's book um one last question I have for you Andrew I like to yes. ask all my guests what is your all-time favorite sports book
0: Ooh, great question um <laughs> it's pretty much all I read <laughs> uh, <laughs> <Me> so <too. laughs> I think I need to mention um Two, because my dad wrote them. <laughs> so can't the Cle- I can get
1: out So I read the, the Clemente book is just marvelous. And, yes. uh, and I read his book about the Rome Olympics too, which was great. But uh, yeah, you go so, ahead.
0: Go so ahead. really three. I mean, I would say okay. both of the a biography of uh, Clemente, a book about the Rome Olympics, and then a uh, biography of Vince Lombardi also called When Pride ah, Still Mattered and yeah. um, Packers Green. So I, I love that book. Um, I mean, I'm a crazy kid. When I was growing up, I read Packer Report and What's Brewing, these little newsletters about them. So, I mean, I've always been reading about sports. I think my dad had me read You Know Me, Al, which is written by like Ring Lardner in the 1920s probably. was one of the first books that I read. I like John Feinstein's books a lot and that whole style of, you know, spending a year with a team or with a player or on the PGA Tour. Mm. I love those types of books. I like Howard Bryant's books, uh, more current, you know, about – race and social justice. Yeah, The Heritage sport. was really yeah, good. Yeah, Heritage is a really good book. Um, I feel like I'm forgetting lots of great books. I but know, there are so many. It's any, hard. Uh, sports nonfiction that's uh, a narrative nonfiction that really takes you there um, behind the scenes are, are my t- favorite types of books. And I'm working on a book right now on, um, it'll be my first related to women's sports. Uh, it'll come out late next year on the first uh, women's U.S. Olympic basketball team, which played at the 1976 Olympics. In Montreal, oh, so wow. I've been reading a lot of good books about history of women's basketball, um, uh, the women's rights movement of the 1970s. Uh, so in some ways, it'll be a little similar to this book on Glenn, taking place roughly the same time period.
1: Well, great! I look forward to reading that one too. Thank you. All right, Andrew, thanks again for coming on. This was this was a lot of fun, and and the book was great. So best of luck with it. Thanks,
0: Paul. It was a lot of fun. It was a great interview, and I appreciate you having this show. You know, uh, a platform for authors to talk about their books is is very, um, (laughs) it's appreciated because there are fewer and fewer, it seems like, outlets to learn about books. You know, book uh, reviews have pretty much disappeared. A lot of the book uh, magazines and publications don't take sports books seriously, which is a pet peeve of mine, (laughs) you know. Um, I don't even think that there's a sports category in the bestseller list anymore like there used to be. So more power to you, Paul. Thank you for what you do.
1: Oh, thank you. Okay, take care, Andrew.
0: All right, you too. Take care.